Welcome to Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. This is Rachel Zucker, and this is the third episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening. In the past few weeks, I've gotten some great feedback from listeners via email and Twitter, and I wanted to respond to a few of the things people have said. A few listeners have gently and lovingly encouraged me to improve the sound quality of the show and offered me guidance for the setup. I'm working on it and hope that soon you'll notice a difference. My friend Dan Schiffman, who's been an enormous help to me, suggested adding an audience participation component to the podcast. I love this idea. Let's definitely do that. But how? Who? Say more. If you have ideas about how to include audience participation, please email me at rachel at commonpodcast.com. See what I did there? I asked for audience participation to help me figure out how to include audience participation. Dan and a few others also encouraged me to be less scripted in my introductions. I'm working on that too, and noticing some interesting things about when I'm comfortable speaking extemporaneously and when I'm not. I am, after all, primarily a writer, not a politician, thank God, or a public figure. And I wonder if writers are people who really shouldn't say stuff without the opportunity to revise. So I'm thinking about it and trying to be less formal. Not sure I'm succeeding so far in this introduction. There's also been quite a bit of feedback about the length of the episodes. I've been told that the ideal length of a podcast should be 25 minutes. That's not going to happen. I just can't do it. In order for me to maintain the casualness and the depth that's important to me in these conversations, I need a long form. I need time. I've been told that a more highly edited show with takeaways or summaries would be more respectful of your time and attention. You, I'm talking about you, the person listening right now. I am enormously grateful to you for listening, and I do want to be respectful of your time and attention. But takeaways and summaries and highlights and a condensed form is not my strength or my interest or the point of this podcast. On the podcast Note to Self, which I quite love listening to, I heard about a news service called The Skim. According to Manoush Samarodi, the host of Note to Self, 3.5 million people get this email and 40% of it open it. It's a roundup of the day's news in an email newsletter form. The skim's tagline is, makes it easier to be smarter. And the idea is that two savvy millennials figured out how to corner the market of the attention economy by bringing the essential points of the news to people suffering from information overload. So perhaps this might be a good time to provide a disclaimer. Commonplace was never intended to provide information and probably won't make it easier for you to be smarter. I'm mostly talking to people who have devoted their lives to the pursuit of things that are ephemeral, that exist outside of almost every economy, even outside the attention economy. I want to spend as much time with my guests and with you as any of us can spare. I want to unsummarize, unparaphrase, unhighlight, undigest, unabridge. I hope that I'm offering something meaningful and sustaining, something thought-provoking and human. A frequently quoted statement by the poet William Carlos Williams is, It is difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. I'm not offering you the news. I am trying to figure out how to live my life, how other people live their lives, what is important, and how to find and make meaning in relation to other human beings. See what I just did there? I just made my intro longer than it needed to be by defending the length of the show. So if you want the unskim, the full-fat, full-bodied, long-form version of the unnews, please keep listening. Please review Commonplace on iTunes and tweet your feedback to at CommonplacePod or through the website www.commonpodcast.com. And now I'll talk a little bit about episode three, my conversation with John Murillo. I met with the poet John Murillo a few weeks ago at NYU, about 10 minutes after each of us had just taught a two and a half hour poetry workshop to undergraduates as part of NYU's intensive Writers in New York program. My relationship with John is seasonal. 
I'd heard about his work but met him for the first time four years ago, and every summer I get to hear John read new work and get to talk to him about teaching for a few weeks. I always look forward to hearing John's new poems when we read together at the faculty reading, and I love hearing his sonorous voice and laughter of his students as it travels up the stairs from his classroom to mine. John Murillo's first book of poems, Up Jumped the Boogie, wowed readers, including me. The book was a finalist for both the 2011 Kate Tufts Discovery Award and the Penn Open Book Award, and was highlighted by many publications, including the Huffington Post. John has coached Washington, D.C. high schoolers in slam poetry, and the confidence, boldness, and assertiveness of slam poetry is evidenced in his work, which pairs openness with tenderness and vulnerability. His second book, The Matador's Ghost, is forthcoming from Cypher Books, and I so look forward to that publication. In our conversation, John and I talk about his initiation into an Afro-Caribbean-based religion. We talk about whether art is a process of pulling away from the world or being in the world, about his writing process and writing space, about basketball, and about the poets he loves. A few listeners asked me for more context, especially for the listeners who are not themselves poets. So for this episode, I'll briefly mention four things that may be of interest before I get to the conversation. The first is that John Murillo mentions the poet Phil Levine. Phil Levine died last year at the age of 87. He was born to Jewish immigrant parents in Detroit. He won almost all the big poetry awards and was the poet laureate and taught for over 30 years. He was a direct mentor to many, many poets and a source of inspiration to many, many more. His poems, many of which are about work and his working class childhood in Detroit, are powerful and moving, and I encourage you to look them up. They are also narrative in the sense that they tell a story or rely on storytelling as a central way of communicating to the reader. This question of narrative in poetry, what is narrative versus what is lyric, is one I spend a lot of time thinking about and will talk more about on future episodes. The second thing is that I mention a talk John gave about the ethics of confessional writing. This talk was extremely important to me when I was teaching my graduate seminar on the legacy of the confessional impulse, and when I was writing my lecture about trying to develop ethical guidelines for myself as a writer. You can find John's talk by Googling John Murillo and the ethics of confession, and I'll also put the link on the Commonplace site. Third, John mentions duende a few times in the episode. Duende means ghost or spirit or soul, but it's used in poetry or art to describe a sort of untranslatable feeling or struggle or space. I'm going to quote um, some excerpts from an essay that the poet Tracy K. Smith wrote about the way the great writer Federico Garcia Lorca elaborated on the concept of duende. Tracy K. Smith writes, I love this concept of duende because it supposes that our poems are not things we create in order that a reader might be pleased or impressed. We write poems in order to engage in the perilous yet necessary struggle to inhabit ourselves, our real selves, the ones we barely recognize more completely. It is then that the duende beckons, promising to impart something newly created like a miracle. You'll get your miracle, but only if you can decipher the music of the battle, only if you're willing to take risk after risk, only, in other words, if you survive the effort. For a poet, this kind of survival is tantamount to walking word by word onto a ledge of your own making. You must use the tools you brought with you, but in decidedly different and dangerous ways. If all of this is true, and I believe it is, this struggle is not merely to write well-crafted and surprising poems so much as to survive in two worlds at once. The world we see, the one made of people and weather and hard fact that, for all its wonders and disappointment, has driven us to the page in the first place, and the world beyond or within this one, that glimpse after glimpse we attempt to decipher and confirm. Survival in the former is predicated on balance, perspective, rehearsal, breadth of knowledge, and experience. It's possible to get by as a poet with those things alone. Many do. A healthy ego doesn't hurt. But for someone fully convinced of the duende, it is the latter world that matters more, the world where madness and abandon 
often trump reason and where skill is only useful to the extent that it adds courage and agility to your intuition. You can find Smith's essay and Garcia Lorca's essay online, and the links will also be on the Commonplace website. Lastly, John mentions poets that he loves, poets who write towards a place of raw truth. I'll put his list on the website, but I just wanted to say here that it includes the poets Jericho Brown, Nicole Seeley, Sharon Olds, Willie Perdomo, Nick Flynn, and Andrea Cohen. I hadn't read Andrea Cohen before and have enjoyed getting to know her work since I heard John mention her. I invite you to check out the work of all these fabulous poets, and perhaps one day I'll get to have each of them on the show. But for now, here's my conversation with the poet John Murillo. I hope you enjoy it. So um, I got initiated as a priest um, in a religion called La Regla de Ocha, or also Lukumi, and it's an Afro-Caribbean-based religion uh, that came through West Africa during the, uh, the Middle Passage. Um, part of the initiation process is uh, we have to spend a year where we dress all in white, uh, head to toe, you remember, white umbrella, white backpack, everything. It's called the Yawarahe. Um, when you're in that stage, you're called a Yawo, which means bride. So you're a bride of the Orisha to which you're crowned. Mm. Orisha are the, um, the forces of nature. Um, uh, some would say the deity of the Yoruba pantheon. Uh, my particular Orisha is called Obatala. So um, I was made a priest to him. And, uh, yeah, so during the year, there are certain restrictions, right? You um, shouldn't be out after dark. You shouldn't be in public places. Uh, you remember I couldn't touch or hug anyone, right? Right, I remember that. Yeah. Um, then there are, you know, a lot of others. You're not supposed to be watching TV. You're not supposed to be um, really interacting too much. And the idea is it's, um, it's a time of renewal. It's a time of, uh, of reflection and introspection, right? So... Um, yeah, so that's well, when we first met. I was actually probably um, towards the end because I started in August. Um, so I think that happened um, by the time we met up, I was maybe a couple year, uh, months from coming out of that. Mm. And it was a full year? A year and seven days. Wow. Yes. What's the significance of a year and seven days in particular? Um, I'm not quite sure. I think, well, possibly because the, the first um, week... Uh, there's a there's an initiation process that happens um, over the course of a week, and then you're let back into the world. Mm -hmm. So maybe from that point on, it's a year. So maybe it's more accurate to say it's seven days and a year. Hmm. And were you not allowed to touch anyone? Well, you can touch um, initiated priests, okay. right? Um, because they also have the ashe, right? Uh, um, the force that you're crowned with. Mm -hmm. um, children are considered pure, so. Um, you know, if you have, like, uh, toddlers or infants around you, of course you can pick them up and whatnot. And uh, my wife, because, uh, you know, she's my maid, so there's that. Wow. You go into a store, and you have to actually, you can't um, uh, hand the cashier money, you have to set the money on the counter, and the cashier has to um, not drop change into your hand, but put the change on the counter mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, that was probably the most awkward part of the whole process um, because I also I was doing readings at the time so I'm traveling as well and you can imagine the people you meet after readings and um, the hands you, you're not able to shake the hugs you're not able to give mm -hmm. so and, and also having to explain that ad nauseum uh, for a whole year um, but again I'm glad I did it and uh, it really is transformative mm -hmm. Are there still things that you are doing now that aren't so visible, but that are a part of your spiritual practice, and or was it contained to that year and seven days? No, well, um, that year and seven days um, instilled some habits, right? So, for instance, one of the things we're not supposed to do is really be on social media like that. Mm. Yeah? Um, and there was something about pulling back, 
that I actually still uh, abide by. Because um, I started going back onto, say, Facebook and just seeing some of the things people were posting and um, just, I don't know, uh, some of the uglier sides of things, right? It was good to be away from that and to not really have that as, as part of my life. It also um, caused me to really evaluate and reevaluate certain relationships and friendships. You know, so there were people that I missed because I mean, again, during that year, you're not going out, so I missed weddings, birthday parties, mm. funerals, right? So it really made me um, cherish you know, a lot of my friendships and also uh, gain clarity on some of the other relationships that I had to jettison. Fascinating, and there there's some resonance with um, Jewish rituals around mourning and, mm. and grief. Um, so, if, if your parent, your sibling, or a child, your child dies, there are certain things you're not allowed to do for a week, other things for a month, other things for a year, including listening to music, going right. to certain kinds of celebrations. And um, I'm so fascinated, though, by the way in which this. Uh, process is about renewal, which mm -hmm. I guess you know grief is as well. Absolutely. But this is a it, it's a very different. Um, it seems, at least to me, not that it's easy, but that it's towards joy, towards wisdom, in 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 sure. maybe an opposite way. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And isn't there also something with mirrors? Yes, you have to cover the mirrors. Yeah. So same with us. For the first, uh, I think it's three months or something, we have to cover every mirror in the house. Um, so yeah, yeah. Were you writing poems during that time? Uh, I was drafting and writing a lot of notes. Um, it could have been a very productive time, but just for whatever reason, um, my process wasn't there. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, and I haven't really written about the process or anything um, gained from that time, but. A lot of those notes and drafts have since become poems, mm. so there's that. Do you feel like that that um, experience and that process uh, changed your writing? Can you see a difference between the poems that you wrote um, before you became a priest and afterwards? I see a difference, but it might have more to do just with the passage of time, mm. right? Um, and again, during that year, I did a lot of studying, um, so it might also have to do with just uh, evolving aesthetics. I can't really say it has um, to do specifically with the process or with the um, with the religious practice in general. But that's me talking now. You know, I might look back, you know, a few months, a few years from now, on the work that I'm, that I'm producing now, and see how it's different. But maybe it's because I'm too close to the process that I still can't really discern. So this was three years ago? Yeah, about three right. years ago. So, um, and, and you're saying that, that now, three years later, some of the notes um, are finally becoming poems. Is that usual for you? What What's the kind of um, gestation period mm, for, yeah. for your poems? Um, I wish it wasn't usual, but it is. There's a long gestation period. Um, the poem that I read the other night, uh, the Eric Dolphy poem, a lot of those incidents and images um, you know, like I said, 20, almost nearly 30 years old, right? So for me, the incident, uh, the memory, will take a long time to work its way onto a page. And I've tried to force it, and it just never works out. So um, I guess part of my process now is just coming to terms with that and knowing that um, I'm just now getting to the notes and the ideas that I had years ago and whatever I'm coming up with now I'll probably get two years from now so um, it makes for a very slow writing process you know um, my last book came out what like six years ago now mm -hmm. and I'm still probably a couple years from the second hmm. um, but you know it, it is what it is do you have notebooks that are dated what's what's your process of yeah taking have, the material I have piles and piles and piles boxes really of, of, of notebooks that are dated and um, you know it's funny because I don't really go back to them and, and mine them for those materials what I do find though is that um, those things that uh, resonate or even uh, I'm even obsessed by they'll keep coming up I'll write about them again and again mm. right so um, I could pick up a notebook that I have now 
and that image will still be working on me from years ago, right? Um, so one could say, my wife would say, that I could get rid of all those journals, right, that they're taking up room <laughs> in the house, but um, it's just part of the process. So for some reason, it's necessary for me to know that they're there. Mm. So it's not so much that you're writing something down in a notebook and then uh, kind of revising that material, but the process of writing it on the page is important, and, and then it's continuing to work inside you, yes. and then continues to come out over and over again. Absolutely. And then how do you know that it's kind of become a poem? Uh, when I get a nice stretch of time, and I'm able to work with something, and I start uh, actually... I guess working on the level of line, right? So um, I have an image or an idea, say a few paragraphs of prose, and once I start to really work it and rework it, um, fail, fail again, um, I know it's on its way to becoming something, right? Um, I'll put it away for a while, I'll come back to it, and um, to me it's a poem, when it starts to take shape, I can see, I can just feel it where it wants to go. At that point, it still might be it will be a lot, a long time before it gets to where I want it to be, if ever. But at least at that point, I could say it's a poem in progress. Mm. Yeah. And then, you, do you, do you type it up and print it out and uh, and carry it around with you? Absolutely. And, yeah. 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 And depending on you know uh, where I'm living at the time, I'll actually uh, pin the poems up on the wall so I can see right what's happening. And the drafts, and um, so they're always reminding me, you know. And it's good for me, that's part of my process too, to have those visual reminders, mm -hmm. right? Um, I walk into a room and the poems are up on the wall staring at me. So um, no matter what else I'm doing, if I'm watching YouTube videos or playing backgammon or something, I don't even play backgammon. I don't know I said that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I have a visual reminder that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing, right? So the, mm -hmm. so the poems are always calling me in that sense. You know, but if I put them away in a file, then it's easy to ignore. Yeah. So can we go back to your wife for a minute? You sure. mentioned her. Um, so you, you're married to and live with um, this wonderful poet. Do you each have your own writing space? We do now. We just got a house um, in East Flatbush. So she has her writing room, a room of her own, upstairs, and I have mine downstairs in the basement. It's not quite there yet because I'm still getting the shelves put up. Mm. But yeah, um, by the end of the summer, we'll each have our own writing spaces. And, you know, with the door to close, and uh, it's, it's been working out. Mm -hmm. Before that, we were living in a really small apartment, and it was difficult uh, because uh, I need solitude and, um, and, and privacy and, and a certain quiet. And where we lived was just really, really rowdy block, really noisy. But now, it's, I have everything I need. It's just a matter of time. Mm. Yeah. Um, and how do you interact with each other around the creative process? Yeah, very differently. Um, Nicole is the one who writes line by line, right? I once read that Dylan Thomas actually composed that way. I think she's closer to Dylan Thomas in the way she um, comes to her poems. And she'll run lines by me, you know. Um, and I'm different. I'll, I actually need to have a whole draft completed, mm. right? And what I've noticed is that if I bring a draft to her too early and it's not something to not start her feet, I'll not even want to mess with the draft anymore. If she doesn't like it the first time, I'll, I get discouraged. So what I've learned is to just keep my drafts to myself, right? Working on them by myself. And when I feel that they're ready for eyes, then I'll, you know, I'll bring them to her. Also, it's difficult to retain one's own voice. Mm -hmm. I'm more of a narrative poet, she's more of a lyric poet. Mm -hmm. um, so when we're running poems by each other, yeah, I think it's natural to want to write something that the other digs, right? So what I find myself and uh, have to stop myself from doing is trying to write toward that lyric, right? When what really interests me as a writer and reader is the narrative. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, so there's something to be gained from, but also some certain things to be watchful. Is she generally your first reader? Generally, yes. Yeah. yeah. And and it's interesting you say that, that your sense is 
you want to please her, you want her to like the of poem, you, that, you know, that's a good feeling, mm-hmm. um, and that you think that she's going to like the poems that are maybe more in her style. Right. Huh. Yeah. Do you feel the urge to push her to be more narrative? No, but what's funny, though, with that first um, point, that's not necessarily the case. That's just my own, um, uh, kind of what, what I impose on her, mm. right? So it's not the case that she likes the stuff that's more in her style, but that's my fear. And no, that's, and I guess this is something that we learned from teaching for so long, right? Is to take each poet, each poem on its own merit. So um, if it's a narrative poem, I find that I'm probably of more use to her, right? Or at least if it's lyric narrative, mm-hmm. right? Um, because just lyrically, uh, there are things that she, she's able to do that I just can't even come close to. So um, the most I can do is appreciate and, and say good job. Certainly, I think you are a narrative poet, but I also think music is mm-hmm. such an essential, mm-hmm. intrinsic part of your work that I'm not quite sure what lyric even means outside of the music. Mm. Can you say more about... um, Yeah, well for me, um, a narrative poem is one where the story's foregrounded, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the poem serves a story. Um, By lyric, I mean one in which um, there's not necessarily a narrative, all right? Um, Maybe the music in the poem, or maybe there's um, uh, a sense of epiphany or truth in the poem, or that the poem's working toward. And lyric narrative, maybe there's a narrative that serves that other purpose. Mm-hmm. So when I think of uh, a narrative poet, I think of someone like a, a Phil Levine, right? Um, a lyric poet, uh, Andrea Cohen, maybe. And lyric narrative, maybe Yusef Komunyaka, right? Larry Levis, I think, runs the gamut from poem to poem, from book to book. I love the balance, or I don't even know if balance is the right word. I love the interplay between the narrative and the lyric um, in your work, and especially the way in which I think you really do use poems to serve the story, but you don't let the story overwhelm the poem. The recording of the talk that you gave at Adelphi about confessional poetry and narrative confessional poetry was was essential um, for the class that I taught last fall on the legacy of the confessional impulse. Um, so you do write poems that tell stories, mm-hmm. and and the reader can often understand what the story is, right. and the story is often about real people. Um, so first of all, do you write about your wife? How does that mm-hmm. kind of play out, um, especially because she's not such a narrative poet? I don't write much about my wife. I have one poem that I've written uh, about her. And I was thinking about this recently, why I don't, and I think part of it has to do with uh, actually being happy, mm-hmm. right? If you think about most love poems or love songs, there's, um, there's a yearning, right? There's a lack, there's a, there's a want. Um, you know, there's the unrequited lover, right? Or there's the, um, the uh, buddy of mine, Patrick Rosal, I heard him talk about how there are usually three elements in a, in a love song. You have the lover, the beloved, and the obstacle, whatever is between them. May, it may be distance, maybe um, a third party, right? Um, so. Wait, what are the three parts? The yeah, lover? The lover, the beloved. The beloved and the and obstacle. And the obstacle. Got mm-hmm. it. And uh, that makes sense to me, right? So. Um, and you think about love songs, like the corny, the ones that are all happy, they're, they're corny, right? Mm-hmm. You know, nobody wants to listen to those. So uh, maybe at some point, I hope not, but maybe we'll get to a point where, you know, I have some things to write about, but yeah. And the second part of the question was what again? Well, so it's not provoking to her because you're not writing about her yeah. so much. Um, I guess the question is when you do investigation that you do in your own work and in Mm. the work of others around the questions of what's ethical and what's not ethical um, and that the value of a poetry of witness at the same time the trespass of you know using other people's Mm -hmm. lives um, in your in your poem and I guess I'm wondering where how are you navigating 
the balance right now in the poems that, that you're writing, even if they're sort of you're bringing them from about three years ago, how are you, do you have new rules for yourself? Have you come to a different place since that uh, lecture? And, and, you know, sure. when did you give that lecture? That, I was actually, I was still in my whites, so that was probably about three years ago as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, it's still a very difficult place for me. Um, navigating that, that line, right, between your own story and uh, the way that your own story involves the stories of others, right? And um, it's, I, I had to take it poem by poem, right? Mm -hmm. What I found is that the, the, um, the poems that I'm writing most recently have a lot to do with family. There's a lot of things I'm working through in, in the work, right, in the poems. So part of my own process is I have to talk about these things. I mean, this is really the only story that I know. When I write about my father, um, there's a bit of safety there because, you know, he, he passed away um, now about 20 years ago, okay? Um, my mother, the rest of my family, they're still here, they're still alive. Um, and May actually read the poems, right? Um, so what will end up happening is there will probably be conversations that will be had. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe the, the poems can lead to healing in that sense, right? If I'm addressing something, an event, and uh, that gives an occasion, uh, say, for my mother and I to have a conversation about something that happened in the past. Um, it's, not, it's, it's not an easy conversation, right? Um, but that's part of the challenge. I don't know that I have it in me to, to not write those poems or, or maybe even to not publish them. There's a, a poet, Kwame Dawes, I remember him saying that what he'll do is he'll write the poem because he needs to write it, but then he'll ask uh, family members who are uh, in the poem, he'll read it to them and ask them if they mind whether or not he publishes. And he said that there have been many occasions where he has some really good poems that uh, his brother or other family member were, um, were opposed to him publishing and he honored their wishes and, and didn't let them out. And he said there's some good poems that just never saw the light of day because of it. There's something to be said about that kind of integrity. I don't know that I have that. Mm. Yeah. Um, or maybe it's a different kind of integrity, honoring the truth from a different angle. Have you been in that position where you've shown uh, a poem to a family member and they've asked you not to publish it? No, I don't. I don't do that. I just write the poem and and kind of let things fall, the chips fall where they will. But but it's worked out. You know, I've had poems where um, uh, I have a cousin who we've talked about something that I've written and this actually brought us closer. Mm. So in this conversation with your cousin, or you before you were talking about how maybe a, a certain poem would uh, spark a conversation with your mother that could be healing. In those situations, are you, you're not showing them the poems, but you are somehow talking to them about the content of the poem as outside of the world of the poem, or, or are you going to your mother or your cousin and saying, hey, I wrote this poem about you, I'd love to talk about it? The latter, uh -huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Do they ask to see the poem? No, well, the, the one case I'm looking at, for instance, my cousin, um, I, I was living in Chicago, she came to visit, and I wrote this poem almost in a single setting once uh, I left her company, and uh, read it to her over the phone. Um, then I tweaked it and you know, revised the poem over you know, a series of months, and uh, it was in the book. And later we had a conversation, and she was telling me where... Um, she was dating someone, and the guy said he wanted to get to know her, so she says, here, read this poem, mm. and it'll tell you everything about me that you need to know. Mm. And I thought that was pretty cool. So in that case, I guess the conversation happened after the fact. There's a poem that I recently published that I still haven't had a conversation about, um, or a conversation with the person who the poem's about. And to be honest, I just kind of let that moment pass, uh, maybe out of cowardice or uh, fear. But it's something that, it's a conversation that still needs to take place, and I'm not sure exactly how that's going to happen. I'm trying to ask this question, and I don't quite know how to do it <laughs> um, articulately, but, you know, I'm still so struck, in part because I've never gone through something like this, about your year and seven days mm -hmm. of this experience, and I'm wondering if 
the process of writing poetry for you is a process that's similar to that in terms of working towards healing or working towards purity or whether the poem is more akin to being out after dark or hmm. having physical contact wow. with people or you know being on social media like is the poem the place where you know for some poets their poems are very much about looking in the mirror mm -hmm. and i don't mean that in a derogatory right, way right. So is the poem the place where you've covered the mirror or where you're mm. looking in the mirror? Well, um, I probably have to think about that a lot more to give um, a, a, a very truthful answer, but I'll, I'll, I'll try my best. I think it's, it's both. Um, and I know that's, that's easy non-answer, but um, the poem, the, the writing of a poem is definitely uh, an occasion that allows me to retreat. Mm. I, I think my nature is much more uh, introverted than extroverted. So even the way that I have my writing room set up now, it's in the basement of my house. It's uh, I don't bring the internet downstairs. I don't um, bring any of my grading or other work downstairs. That's just for that, right? Mm -hmm. And it's also the place where I'll be doing a lot of my religious uh, stuff as well. So um, there is something uh, sacred to me about that process, right? But also in the poems, um, I am writing. I'm, I'm still very much uh, a poet of witness, and and some would even say a confessional poet, right? So, the poem itself is is an occasion for me to actually reach out, and, and to touch mm -hmm. and connect with others. So I guess it's a bit of both. I'm fascinated by that idea of the poem taking place in a in a sacred space. Um, and itself in a way being a sacred space, mm. although not an isolated right, one. Right. I think for me the exact opposite is true. Really? I, I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not sure that this is true, mm -hmm. but I think that the poem is often a place for me to misbehave mm -hmm. and to, and it comes out of chaos and out of noise and out of interruption. Sure. And, um, and I think I feel very well behaved mm -hmm. in my regular life right. and then the poem is is it's not a lie uh, be, because I don't really know how to do that mm -hmm. um, in poetry but it is the place where I get to you know really um, be bad yeah yeah free free yeah, I guess yeah. and I there's some there is something healing about it but I think it's actually really not a sacred space for mm -hmm. me mm -hmm. I'm interested in what it would feel like to try uh, to to uh, reimagine that sure. relationship to poetry. Sure, I think too. Um, by sacred, maybe I mean something closer to secret. Mm. In that, um, it's you know, there's so much I feel just intruding all the time, weighing in. You know, even um, just domestic responsibilities and and job responsibilities and you know all the other things that are always tugging at your attention. So. Um, the space that I'm trying to create for and um, with my writing is a place where I can just kind of center and, and, and work against everything else. Or not even have to work against it because it's not allowed in. But that also could be a very dark place too because, you know, once you shut out all that noise, you have to deal with what's there. Yeah. And maybe that's why a lot of the poems that I write are what they are. Mm. Yeah. Let's, will you read something? Sure. I'll read this one. So this, I have a series of poems that have my father in them, and I guess they're about my father. There's one on prosody, there's on, on lyric narrative, on magical realism. This one's called On Metaphor. I think that's all I'll say about it. In back of daddy's closet, behind the cold and loaded pistol, I find a cedar box of snapshots, his company in camouflage, waving rifles, reefer, and middle fingers at the photographer, at you and at me. And here, the full-lipped red bone he left in the world without a goodbye. Here, a strange boy with my father's forehead, same sullen eyes. Flip the photo. A stranger's name and dates that don't add. Scrawled as if rushed, 
as if a fugitive's note slipped quick to the future. When my mother walks in, I shove the box to the back of the shelf, say nothing of the red bone or the boy. I hand her, instead, the pistol, a forty-five, I believe, its cold barrel gleaming in the room's bum light. When she angles it just so, I think I see my father reflected in the steel. Wait, no, not my father. It's me. Mm. I'd love to know for that poem um, and, and maybe other poems, who are the like poetic foremothers and forefathers mm. for you, living or ghosts sure. that are part of that poem? Uh, you know, I was thinking about this recently. I think our first poets, right, really, they're foundational in a, in a few different senses. But one, they color everything else you read, right? And it's so arbitrary who you're introduced to first. When I first started reading seriously, they ended up being some of the poets that I studied with here, like Phil, Levine, uh, Youssef, Konyaka, Sharon Olds, who I didn't really get to study with here, uh, but she was really important to me, Lucia Clifton. Uh, and everything else kind of comes out of there. Mm. One of the most important poets to me, probably the one I've studied the most, I'd say is Larry Levis. So, so much to the point where I find myself now having to uh, work deliberately against Levis and Yusef's influence on my work. Um, I feel that at this point I'm still somewhat derivative somewhat imitative of, of those two. Um, and, it, you know, it may take me a couple more books to actually work my way through that, but that's, that's where I am now. And, um, and Sharon and, and, and um, Lucille Clifton were huge for me as well. And Etheridge Knight. I can't forget about Etheridge Knight. What was it like working with Yusuf and working with Phil Levine and, and, and being here? Was it a positive experience for you? It was. It was. I think coming into uh, the MFA program, I wanted something, I wanted someone to hold my hand and to be, you know, a, a really hands-on kind of mentor, right? Um, uh, like uh, Morpheus to Neo, right, in, in The Matrix. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't get that. What I got was um, a, a very uh, important lesson in what it takes to, to write. You know, Yusef gave us book titles and he said, look, if you're going to do this, this is what you're going to do. No one's going to hold your hand. And just being around people who've devoted their lives to this was key. One of the most important moments happened in, in one of my first workshops here with Phil. And I think someone might have been... Uh, I wrote about this actually in the anthology they did for Phil. I think someone in the class might have been... Um, kind of being glib about how nobody reads poetry anymore. You know, we're just kind of here to please ourselves or something like that and he looked at us I remember him looking each of us in the eye at the same time I don't know how he did it leaning forward and saying you know nothing you do in life is as important as this right here huh. and he meant that and he made you mean it too you know he believed in that and you know there's something I keep that close to heart you know by my writing desk, I actually have a, um, a picture of Phil and a quote that I got from him once where he says, um, actually, it, it was in his essay, uh, Mine Own John Berryman, where him and his classmates used to say, um, this thing with the poems is serious. Mm. Right? It's, it's really important, I think, to remember how important it is and how little it has to do with any of the accolades and you know Facebook posts and any of those things that exist outside of the work. So those two guys are huge for me. And uh, Kamiko Han was a and has been and is still a great friend and mentor. On the first day of class, she actually emailed everyone ahead of time, told us to bring in our three best poems, copies for everyone, and she had us go around and read our best poem to each other. And afterwards, she goes, okay, now that we're finished impressing each other and impressing ourselves, let's get to work. Huh. And she said, this is a space where I want you to take risks. I want you to try something. I want you to mess up, fail, you know, um, and leave your ego at the door. So that was a great uh, lesson in terms of teaching poetry, I think. And I made great friends here. Some of my closest friends are people I met 
in this building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people you still share work with. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Who? How did you find Lucille Clifton, Etheridge Knight, um, Larry Levis, like the poets who weren't literally here? Sure. Yeah. Who, how'd you get to them? I'll tell you. Um, I was living in D.C. Uh, I was almost 30 years old. And um, there were a group of poets there. Um, they called themselves the Black Rooster Collective. It was uh, Brandon Johnson, Gary Lilly, Ernesto Mercer, and this guy Joe Diaz Porter. Brandon and Joe became really important mentors for me. The guy Joe, he actually gave me a book list, about 30 to 40 books on that list, and I went and I bought every one and I read them. Wow. You know, um, he gave me some of my first writing exercises, exercises that I still use with my students now. So he was really my first poetry teacher. And um, again, this if was he, before NYU. This is way before NYU. Yeah, yeah, before I even knew what an MFA was. Mm. You know, this is um, just me wanting to write a good poem. And again, had he written down thirty or forty other names on that list, my sense of a poem would be different. Every um, the way I teach would be different. Um, so it's, it's just very interesting to me how arbitrary the whole thing is. So before NYU, you had this other experience, but what came before that? Like, what, what, uh, how did you start writing poems? How did you, how did you come to a place where someone would give you a, a long hmm. reading list of, of, of books and you would think, oh, I better take this seriously and read yeah. all of these? <laughs> well, when I was a kid, I used to rap, mm-hmm. right? And by, I mean, from age 11 all the way to maybe 20 or 22 or so. By the time I was a teenager, going into my late 20s, I was writing essays. I wanted to be an essayist, actually. Poetry wasn't anywhere on my radar until, like I said, I was, you know, mid to late 20s. And um, I just started writing things that um, really didn't fit with, with the, the, the rap format, you know, either in terms of content or even um, in structure. And uh, I had some friends in D.C. who were poets. I started going to readings, um, hearing them read. And when I really realized how much work went into crafting a poem, that's actually what drew me in. Mm-hmm. Uh, these guys, they would workshop every Tuesday night. And they were harsh, harsh, harsh. And it was, it was serious business, you know. And uh, that turned me on. I wanted to, you know get in there and, and roll my sleeves up and, and really, you know, learn the, this, this art form. You know, from there, again, this guy gave me writing exercises, book lists. Uh, Ethelbert Miller, another guy who was really um, important, um, he used to work at Howard University in the um, Afro-American Research uh, Department, Afro-American Studies Research Department. And he was a poet, also gave me books and invited me out to the, um, they had this thing at the Folger Shakespeare Library, the Lannan program mm-hmm. so Atlanta fellowship so he invited me to be one of the fellows and you'd go you got to hear a reading you got a free book from the poet and sometimes you even got to dine with the poets and you know the more I read and I kind of um, got hooked mm-hmm. yeah a lot later than you know other people at that point I was pushing 30 if not 30 right so after a few years of that um, I decided and I was like, uh, say 34 or so, that I wanted to give everything to this. I was working a couple of jobs. I was an elementary school teacher, as well as a personal trainer, fitness trainer. And I just had no time to really write or read. And I said, you know, if I'm going to do this, I need to do it. So I applied to schools and wanted to give myself two years where all I had to do was read and write poetry. And that's what brought me to New York. Hmm. It seems like one of the things that really appealed to you about poetry was the seriousness with which people took poetry. Sure. Were you always such a serious person? It seems like a, a, a theme of wanting to, to be all in, you know, wanting to, 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 to really give yourself over to poetry, mm. to marriage, sure. to your spiritual practices. Like, you're, you're, you're not a dilettante. No, you're a no. serious person. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. There's something, um, uh, I might write about this at some point. Uh, one of my first loves was basketball, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I started going to basketball camp when I was like nine years old. It was one of the best experiences of my life. And what I used to love were the drills. Um, and at these basketball camps, they had these optional clinics that, that would take place early in the morning. They were, um, you know, totally um, optional. 
but they had a rebounding clinic, a ball handling clinic. And what these were were these short sessions where you would go and get extra drills, extra mm -hmm. work. And I loved all that. I can remember um, practicing, you know, to like 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, just dribbling. And there's something about, and all those stories I used to love of basketball players were the players who had no talent or were short and they worked hard and got to where they wanted to be. Mm. Um, so there's something about hard work that just, uh, I don't know why my spirit just takes to. And um, with poetry, it was the same way. Once I realized it wasn't just about uh, a natural talent, that, but there was something that you can actually do to make yourself better, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I was, I was hooked. Yeah. yeah. What's the equivalent in your life now of staying for the extra drills in mm. poetry? Yeah, um, really carving out time, mm -hmm. right? Learning now how to balance the rest of life with, with poetry. So, so again, here in the MFA program, I had two years where I could just write. And then um, after that, I went to Provincetown for you know, that fellowship where I had no obligations whatsoever. But now how do you go, get back into the real world and real life and still carve that time out, right? Um, so that's been the biggest challenge, right? Mm -hmm. And really having to be a taskmaster and um, making sure I'm getting my time in. Yeah, I do drills still. I, I have writing exercises I give myself. I practice um, meter. I practice with sound devices. I practice with image. Um, I, I, yeah, yeah. Do you do the exercises you give your students? Not while they're doing them. Mm -hmm. um, I've tried that in the past, but um, it's hard because I'm always watching the clock, so I'm not really sinking into the space that I want them to sink mm -hmm. into. Yeah. Um, but I have, and sometimes I even workshop my own poems with the students too, and that's been a pretty cool experience. Mm. Tell me something that you're loving lately. Like, could be another poet, but it could be... Uh, basketball, it could be a movie, it could be anything, hmm. something that gives you, you know, energy and, and, and joy. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny, for the past two years, well, one, our house, we just got a garden in the backyard, so we bought some vegetables and some flowers, that's pretty cool, but um, basketball has been that thing I've come back to. Again, it was a childhood love of mine, I got away from it for a few years, but I've within the past couple of years become a uh, really big fan again mm. of the Lakers. I'm going to the trip, the, uh, the NBA draft uh, this June at Barclays. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about our young players. This guy we're going to be drafting maybe named Brandon Ingram from mm. Duke. It's funny, it's, uh, I was talking with someone about this earlier. It's totally inconsequential, right? I, I mean, I have, no, these guys don't know me, I don't know them. It doesn't affect my own life in any way, but I think that's the draw. You know, mm -hmm. it's just um, I have nothing to do with it, so it's um, completely fun, and uh, I, I've, I've been enjoying it. Yeah, I went to a couple games this summer at um, at the Barclays. Yeah, so it's, it's been cool. Part of what I'm interested in is, you know, what are the things that maybe don't show up in your poems, mm -hmm. but are essential to the making of them, not necessarily uh, the content but the making of them, or that helps you uh, be an artist, or, that's, or, or, or maybe just helps you be an artist because it distracts you, or it's this other place where you don't have to be serious. Huh. Um, I'm thinking, for some reason, music. It doesn't work itself into the poems, but there's something that, that really drives me, I think. Um, when I listen to someone like say Carlos Santana or Marvin Gaye, right, um, Donny Hathaway, there's something in that soulfulness that I'm always trying to convey in the poems. Mm -hmm. And even when I'm not necessarily trying to convey it, that's what I want out of the out of the poems, right? That's um, my sense of what it means to be an artist has to do with that. With someone called Duende, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. And is it sense. more about the way the music? Uh, makes you feel or about those musicians and their lives and the ways in which they've made art and music? Yeah, I think it has more to do with the way the music makes me feel, but in some cases, for instance, with Marvin Gaye, his biography is something that I'm, I'm um, really moved by. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, there's certain parallels 
um, between us. Um, so there's that, but there's just something I think, uh, you know, when I think about my poems, they, they, there's there's a correlation I can't really articulate very well right now, but but um, it has to do with the music and that being what's been driving me for so long. Mm. Yeah. One of the other things I was hoping this podcast um, experience or process or whatever um, would give me permission to talk face to face because I'm pretty isolated other than my teaching um, and ask questions that I wouldn't necessarily have the guts to ask, you know, an email sure. or whatever. So we read together um, two nights ago. Um, and after the reading, you said to me, if I heard you correctly, you're in my tribe. Yes. And I, I was so struck by it, mm. but I didn't really know what you meant, and I didn't know if it meant the same thing to me that it meant to you. Yeah, so um, I believe in poetry families, mm -hmm. right? Um, and you put me, Jericho Brown... Jean Anverly, um, who else? Uh, Sharon, mm -hmm. right? Um, and Nicole and, and Celie in a lot of in a lot of her work as well. Um, people who write to and from the gut. There's this rawness there. There's um, again Duende, right? Um, it's not poetry necessarily that that wants to be parsed or that is difficult for difficulty's sake mm -hmm. um, is a different kind of difficulty. It's um, difficult because it goes straight to the matter. Um, I think I'm really, really drawn to your work uh, for that reason. Um, who else? Uh, Andrea Cohen, again, mm -hmm. someone I mentioned earlier. Um, her poems do the same thing for me. Nick Flynn is another. Right? Um, I think so Carl Phillips, some of Yusef's uh, earlier work, yeah. Um, so, so tribe has has to do with that, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you have um, some for whom, you know, it's it's about experimentation and it's about uh, I don't know um, something else, right? But I feel that we are writing from and toward a place that's really about the raw truth. And um, yeah, that, that's, that's what I meant. Mm. It made me feel so uh, happy. <laughs> it really did. Oh, good, good, yeah. thank you. Do you know Jean really her work? No. Oh, and I, and the, the, one of the other things I, I'm so excited about this experience is uh, just getting my new list, mm, you know, my mm. new list of, of what to read yeah. and what to do and what to think about, um, because that is so sustaining, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and I think, as you said, it gets harder and harder in some ways. Mm. It should get easier and easier, but it gets harder and harder to stay open and, and read widely yeah. and deeply because those early influences mm. do really color so much Absolutely. of yeah. what you like. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Someone else I I would definitely put on there is um, Patrick Rosal. Yes. And uh, and Willie Perdomo. I think um, they're also part of this tribe we're talking about. Um, Patrick has his new book, uh, Brooklyn Antediluvian, mm -hmm. which is amazing. Maybe I should have each person that I interview have a little suggested reading list uh, and post it somehow oh, on the website. Cool. It would be really fun, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was a pretty cool conversation. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Always. This has been Commonplace, conversations with poets and other people. If you like what you hear, please let me know on Twitter or via the Commonplace website. And please consider writing a review of the podcast on iTunes. Our theme song is written and performed by Moses Zucker Gorin, design work by Eitan Darwish. Commonplace would not be possible without the work of Christine LaRusso and Nicholas Fuenzalida. Episode 4 will feature Claudia Rankin and will go live on July 15th. Until then, I wish you meaning and happiness in the world we see and the world beyond, moments of duende and moments of peacefulness.
Thank you for listening.